where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits, where feeding our kids meets feeding ourselves, and where helping our kids learn that all bodies are good bodies meets actually believing it about our own bodies. This is The Messy Intersection. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Messy Intersection, to the new and improved Messy Intersection, I should say. I'm Diana Rice, a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and mom of two. You can find me on Instagram at AntiDietKids or in the Raising AntiDietKids Facebook group. And as you may already know, The Messy Intersection is now on Substack. It is now both a podcast and a newsletter. I have rolled the newsletter that I was previously calling The Anti-Diet Parent right on into The Messy Intersection Substack. And you can check out the archive of both newsletter essays and podcast episodes at dianarice.substack.com. I have such a great episode for you today. This interview is with Virginia Soul Smith, who is the author of the Burnt Toast newsletter, as well as the brand new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, that was just released on April 25th. I think I say it at some point in the interview, but seriously, run, do not walk to go get your copy of this book. I will link to places you can buy it from in today's show notes, but seriously, this book is just so, so important to the overall conversation of raising anti-diet kids and unpacking the baggage and the biases and the poor advice that all just turns into a perfect storm of not knowing how to feed our kids and not knowing how to actually support them in having healthy bodies and healthy relationships with food. So, Let's get right to it. Just a reminder that the content on this show is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and all views I express are my own. Let's hear from Virginia. Okay, Virginia, welcome to The Messy Intersection. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So Virginia Soul Smith is the author of the upcoming book, Fat Talk, and I just want to dive right in, Virginia. What is so important about this book? Why did you get the idea to write it, feel the need to write it? Why this book? Why right now? Yeah, all very good questions. This book really came out of conversations I had with readers after my first book, which is called The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. It came out in 2018. And in the sort of promotional period of that book, doing events, interviews, talking to readers, I kept getting all these questions from parents. And in particular, I kept getting these questions that made it clear to me that parents right now are sort of caught between these two impossible tasks, which are we want our kids to love their bodies. We don't want our kids to get eating disorders. We want them to have a healthy relationship with food. We care so much about that. And we don't want to have fat kids. And like you can't achieve both these goals because you can't have a healthy relationship with food and body if that's conditional on body size. And I realized in talking to parents and hearing from so many parents and readers, like this is where we were getting stuck because our generation of parents, you know, we really grew up in the quote obesity epidemic. You know, this messaging has been built into every interaction we have with public health, with doctors, with just every institution that, you know, quote, obesity prevention is the most important thing and da 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 And then at the same time, you know, millennial parents also know a lot about diet culture that we grew up in and feeling bad about our bodies. And so there's just this sense over and over of like, I don't want this for my kids. I want something different, but I don't know what I'm allowed to want. And so Ugh. that's really what led me to say, okay, we have to reclaim fat 
which I am not the first person to do by any means. That's decades of fat mm-hmm. activism I'm invoking there. But we need parents to reclaim fat. We need parents to understand what anti-fat bias is, to know how to name it, how to spot it, and start to think about how to navigate it with our kids. Yeah, absolutely. I've, this is something I've noticed in my own work is there's a lot of information out there for adults recovering from diet culture, recovering from eating disorders, uh, embracing fat liberation. But there is very, very little <laughs> directed, not specifically at kids, like ideally, you know, our seven-year-old kids aren't on Instagram, but right. directed at parents <laughs> of how to talk to their kids. And that's why I think your work is so important in this space. And it actually reminds me, I believe it's in Christy Harrison's Anti-Diet. She has a quote about, at some point, we we can't just keep pulling people out of the stream. We have to go upstream yes. and and end you know, what is getting people into this mess in the first place. And to me, and and I believe, you know, knowing what I know about your work, that's childhood. Yeah. (laughs) That's raising another generation of kids who, one, doesn't suffer this way, but two, does not perpetuate these harmful ideals in their own families. And if we don't do that, we're SOL, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And and often, you know, if there is any conversation around this, it starts in the teenage years because that's when eating disorders tend to show up. But at that point, it's, I'm not going to say it's too late because I'm sure you have parents with teenagers listening. It's not too late. You can always do this work. But like I often hear from parents like, oh, but I don't want to talk about this with my three-year-old or my seven-year-old because mm-hmm. I don't want to teach them to feel bad about their body. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. what we know from research is the world is already teaching your kids this. Like Between three and five, kids yeah. start to equate fat with bad and understand these messages. So we have to be out in front. We have to be counter-programming this. And there's ways to do it that, you know, that won't overly impart the sort of like scary stuff. You know, like you can do it in a very positive, loving way. There's no need yeah. to, to avoid these topics. If I recall correctly, you have a piece about like, particularly for liberal parents, it is easier for them to talk about being anti-racist and yeah. other things along those lines. And, you know, what's the gist of that piece? Why is it so hard to talk about anti-fat bias with, with little kids? Yeah. And to be clear, I don't think white liberal parents are doing an amazing job at talking about racism. Like, a lot of work and learning we all yeah. still have to do there. But I do think in the last, you know, my older daughter is almost 10. So in the last decade, I've seen a real shift where particularly like white liberal parents feeling very conscious of I have to learn how to talk about racism. I think gender identity is another one. We've started to do a much better job about talking inclusively about gender, about pronouns and and sort of breaking down the binary of what it means to be a boy and a girl and all of that. And I think a lot of us have like really put in the work there. And then I've had parents say to me, you know, I know exactly what I would say if my kid pointed out that someone was black, but I don't know what to say if they say, oh, that man's so fat in the grocery store. And this is an area where I think we just haven't done the same work yet. We haven't started to develop the scripts. And so that's a big thing that I think the book helps parents do is start finding that language. But it's also because this is an issue that you are probably struggling with yourself. And so you immediately have that knee jerk, fat is bad. Don't say fat. Don't talk about Mm -hmm. it. Don't put it away. And that like gets in the way of your ability to talk to your kids. 
Yeah, yeah, that's so important. So I'm so interested in how uh, this book evolved out of the reactions you were getting from your first book. And as a follow of your work since that first book, I know that you would be, you know, posting on social media about your process of putting this book together, looking for sources, even just, I think, collecting, you know, reactions mm-hmm. from people on certain topics. What was that process like? Like, I, I know, you know, we all think that, that social media is kind of this ball and chain <laughs> that we're tied to, but I imagine it facilitated the writing process in a pretty unique way. What was that like? Yeah, I really feel like this is a book that I wrote with and for my community in a in a kind of really special way. I started my Substack newsletter, Burnt Toast, when I was a few months into this book research. So I really think of this as like the book that Burnt Toast built in a way. And it is different. My first book came out of some like deeply personal experiences. I then did spend a lot of time reporting out the issues in those books, traveling, talking to people. Like, this is what I do as a journalist, right? I tell people stories. And so my work has always had that through line of, like, finding sources and sitting with them and hearing their stories. And so what was different with this book was I also wrote it during COVID. So I couldn't travel and, like, hang out at someone's kitchen table. Like, people did not want me at their kitchen table, right? So, you know, I really couldn't report this book in the same way I reported my first book, Or in the same way I was used to working in general as a journalist, of going and spending time with people. And that does change how you think about finding sources. And so social media did really fill that gap in that what I did have was access to, you know, 30,000 people on Instagram or 25,000 people on a newsletter where I could say, you know, this is what I'm looking for if you have stories to share. And that did a couple of things that really helped ground me in what parents are most struggling with and most concerned about. Like I'm hearing very directly from readers all the time now in a way that's new and really awesome. So I do feel like I was able to shape the book very specifically towards what readers are looking for. On the other hand, the downside of it is that you're in an echo chamber, right? Because people who are following me already sort of are interested in this and maybe they're not like uh, wouldn't say they're 100% fat liberationists, but they're at least like questioning diet culture and starting mm-hmm. to do this work. And so I did have to push to make sure I was finding sources that weren't just like my typical reader and, you know, to sort of push beyond that. And again, social media is helpful. Like, you know, I found like more of that on Twitter where my presence is a little more diffuse or, mm-hmm. you know, you just have to like kind of like go a little bit further and how you're locating people and pay attention to you know, the gender makeup, the racial makeup, the socioeconomic makeup of sources and make sure that I was, you know, gender identity, all of that, trying to be fairly inclusive. I probably didn't do a perfect job on that because it's really hard, but (laughs) it was something I was being really mindful of. And yeah, it is, I would say mostly, I think it was a real strength that I was able to connect so directly with readers and understand what they're really struggling with. Yeah, there are so, so many stories in the book. I honestly had a little bit of a hard time keeping all of the families straight. Yeah, that's In, in a good way, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, wait, is this the mom who grew up with restriction or not? And yeah, know, it's, it's fine. I know. I would um, love, but, you know how like with like epic novels, they often have like mm-hmm. a flow chart at the front so you can keep all the generations straight. <laughs> yes. There's not really like a good model for that Ooh, with nonfiction, but I would have yeah. loved to be like... <laughs> I would just try to be like this mom from that you met her in right, chapter right. two and now we're here in chapter 12. And yeah. Right. But that, that just illustrates that there are so many stories of real people in the book, real families that are struggling with these yeah. things. And I think that you did a 
fairly good job with the diversity of it as Thank well. You. I was really encouraged to see that you explored this. I mean, there's so many things that you cover in here, but for me and what I know that my followers get confused about, I was encouraged to see that you explored the role that l- what people learn about division and responsibility plays into what you were describing at first of, I want to do this right. I want to raise kids with a healthy relationship with food. And I don't want them to be fat. Right. right? right. <laughs> so you have a whole section called When DOR Becomes a Diet. For anybody who's unfamiliar, that's a child feeding principle where parents choose what, where, and when of food. Children choose whether and how much. And it's uh, it's interesting because, you know, as someone who has studied with the Ellen Satter Institute, I have a pretty good concept of how, well, we'll talk about the issues with the Ellen Satter Institute <laughs> in a second, but I have a pretty good concept about how it is both not a method to uh, shrink bodies. And it's actually not a nutritional intervention at all. It's considered a behavioral intervention, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But take one look at social media and you would think it's a nutritional intervention. And there's a very interesting parallel, I think, as someone who's also a certified intuitive eating counselor as to when influencers take and run the concepts of intuitive eating and talk about how much weight they lost on intuitive eating, right? And so so basically... Diet culture, anti-fatness ruins everything. And you have an excellent newsletter piece, which I will link to as well, about how diet culture has, I don't want to say ruined DOR, because whenever I say that, people are like, wait, we're not supposed to use it anymore. No, no. Yeah, it's still (laughs) really useful. But, you know, A, it's not, it was not a perfect model to begin with, because there's no such thing as a perfect model. And B, it is very easy to co-opt. Yeah. yeah. So how exactly did you explore that? uh, How does it become a diet? What are parents doing here? Yeah. I mean, I think what it is, is it's all in parents are in charge of the what. And so Mm -hmm. that is a great idea in theory. It's something I really firmly believe in, try very hard to practice in my own home. But if you are defining what as okay, so my kids can't really eat carbs and they can't really eat sugar. And I mostly only feel good if they eat fruits and vegetables and my kids don't like fruits and vegetables. Like (laughs) that's diet. It's very easy to define the what through diet culture. And then you're in a position where you are exerting all this control over what food they get offered and your child will experience that as restriction because it is because you're restricting them. And so that is the sort of the whole challenge is in order for parents to be in control of the what, we actually have to give up a lot of control. And we Mm. have to realize that like, it's not our job to only be offering these perfectly balanced, you know, rainbow bento box. That's what you see on Instagram Mm -hmm. with the strategically placed three blue M&Ms as a tree, like, you know, and all the 47 types of produce cut into flower shapes. Like, oh my gosh, who has the time? I just, I, every time I'm just like, I don't have the time. <laughs> I know, I have like a little stress response every time yeah. I describe one of those images. And like, look, if that gives you, if you're listening to this and you're like, but I love my cookie cutter right. flower shapes, like, if that gives you joy, that's great. But please yeah. understand that it's a hobby, not a requirement. Right, for right. It's like the laundry room thing, right? Yeah, Casey Davis says that. Like, having a beautiful laundry room is a hobby, not a care task. Like, we have to feed our children. We don't have to feed them, like, lifestyle photo shoot quality meals. (laughs) That's not the goal. (laughs) We just have to feed them enough so that they can grow and thrive. And the plates don't have to be pretty at all. At all pretty. So, yeah. So that, I think, is a big piece of it. And then the other piece of it is, like, the diet culture shows up when – You're trying to control the what in that sense, and then you're still wanting your child to control the how much, 
but you don't really feel that comfortable with how much your child wants to eat. And so when you see your kid having three servings of pasta and no broccoli or, you know, asking for more cookies and you didn't mean to control the what, but you actually only put out two cookies per person. And what do you mean you want another cookie? Or, you know, like, like I have my afternoon snack here, my Uncrustable. Like oh, these God. come like prepackaged. Yeah. And so wait, yeah. my child wants to eat two of them, but there's only one in a package. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff is still like these sort of sneaky ways that parents start to try to control the how much that's diet culture showing up again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's this sense of if I do DOR, which has this whole research institute behind it, everybody agrees, best practice of child feeding, this is what will get my kid yes. to eat the food that I'm putting out. So I just have to, you know, stick with it, play yes. the long game. And there's someone you interviewed in your newsletter piece about this who was playing the long game for kind of a while mm-hmm. and it wasn't working out for her yeah. kid. And I don't I don't think that you mentioned that that kid had any neurodivergence, but I know you interviewed Noreen Hunani in the yeah. book mm-hmm. uh, who uh, basically has a very strong opinion about uh, what what DOR is, is doing, especially with neurodivergent kids. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, Noreen points out that DOR does state, I I mean, Ellen Satter states very plainly that the goal of this method is that over time, your child will learn to eat most of the same foods you eat. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that not all kids are going to do that for a variety of reasons. Not all kids, a sort of typical DOR feeding schedule of three meals and three snacks, perfectly spaced and always sitting down at the table and eating as much as you're hungry for and no more. Like that is a very ableist model because not every kid, not every human is wired to eat that frequently Uh or to eat on that kind of schedule or to be able to sit at a table for the entire duration of a meal. You know, like there's so many pieces of this that if you're dealing with any kind of neurodivergency or really kids of any age and, you know, like my kids are neurotypical by most measures and, We really struggle with a lot of this. And I think having that expectation that this is going to fix things is really fundamentally ableist because it's assuming there's like a, quote, right way to feed a kid Mm -hmm. and a right way for them to be as an eater, as opposed to saying like, okay, what if my child never becomes a more adventurous eater? What if my child is always extremely cautious, always mostly only gravitates towards carbs and cheese or, you know, whatever the foods Mm -hmm. are that you're like, they never stop eating these. What if that doesn't ever change? How do I want them to feel about their relationship with food? Do I want them to feel good about it? Yeah. I don't want them to feel shame and live their life feeling bad that they could never achieve this like standard of eating that is fairly arbitrary. And were they, you know, like man in the 50s, nobody would even be questioning, you know, like it's so (laughs) defined by like our current cultural norms and expectations. Like, I want my kid to feel great about their relationship with food, even if they only have nine safe foods. Mm -hmm. That kid deserves to feel good about food and feel like, you know, that they can trust their bodies. And so how do we then step away from like trying to control this with an eye towards outcomes? I think that's really what it comes down to is like whenever you're really focused on the outcome as opposed to the process and what's making your family meals more pleasant and more, you know, like building more trust between you and your child, that kind of thing. And so that, you know, yeah, talking to Noreen and following your work and lots of other folks who've kind of raised these questions really helped me to start to, like, just even in my own personal life, feeding my kids, like, think about, like, well, when is DOR useful and when is it not, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's 
that more responsive feeding approach does have a lot more potential where parents can say, like, where am I getting stuck and why am I getting stuck? And is it because I'm putting an unfair expectation on my kid? Well, then how can I let that go? Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of parents are necessarily drawing the straight line from the outcomes that they want from DOR into conforming to be ultimately a grown-up who eats according to the way that diet culture says we should eat. Right, right, right. right. Uh, but ultimately, that is the outcome when we're looking at these rainbow bento boxes of yes, food and things. definitely. That is was kind of subconsciously embedded in us. One thing that I often bring up with my coaching clients, who, as we discussed, are generally sort of open-minded parents, I say, if your kid... Uh, chose a certain gender identity or you wanted to choose a profession or whoever they choose to marry, would you fight against that? Would you try to put your square peg in a round hole? Mm. No, no, of course not. My kid wants to be an artist and not a doctor. Absolutely. I want them to. It's individuality, right? And then I bring it back to, well, if they chose to eat this way for the rest of their lives, what would that mean? And, you know, it's a light bulb moment. But uh, I think it really gets into that performance of health that you discuss in the book. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found on that? Yeah. So, you know, we think of health as this, like, we think of it as very binary, right? We think you're either healthy or you're not healthy. Mm -hmm. And if you're healthy, it's because you're doing a lot of things right. And if you're unhealthy, it's because you're doing a lot of things wrong. Like, this is kind of, I don't think people would say it that plainly, but I think Mm -hmm. on some level, that's how we've been sort of trained to think about it. But the reality is health is really much more of a resource and it's a form of social capital. And so health is something that if you are privileged in terms of race, gender identity, socioeconomic status, body size, et cetera, it is much easier for you to attain health because like people just look at you and assume you're healthy pretty much if you're thin and white, like and able-bodied. Yes. Like people just look at you and are like, that's a healthy person. I bet they're doing great. And we look at anyone in a more marginalized body and assume that they are unhealthy and probably doing something wrong and maybe also ignorant about how to eat and exercise and need all these interventions. And this is harmful, obviously, for anyone in a marginalized body <laughs> because you just wrote them off. Like obviously that's terrible and leads to huge, you know, like they're not receiving the healthcare they deserve. They're not treated with dignity and respect. Like there's clear, clear harm there. But it also really harms the privileged white person, thin, thin mom type of person as well, because so much of our social identity then is tied to our ability to perform and maintain health as a form of social capital, to like provide it to our children, to continually strive for it in terms of what hobbies does our family enjoy? Like, are we skiing and bike riding or are we watching, playing video games and staying home? You know, like, are we like joining a farmer's market and a CSA or are we shopping at Walmart? Like, what do their lunch boxes look like? Can I let my kids pack their own lunch? My five-year-old packed herself goldfish and cheese and uh, Hershey Kisses for lunch today. Or do I have to intervene and do the bento box rainbow thing? You know, like, mm-hmm. So when we start to start to understand that health is actually much more about how we present to the world and these standards we're worried about being judged by, then we can start to say like, okay, I don't want to buy into that whole system. Like when I am pushing so hard to achieve that version of health for me and my family, I'm actually like it's costing us something and I'm playing into this whole hierarchy and reinforcing all these biases against anyone who doesn't have my privilege. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's just as hard uh, to reject at that point. Like you might 
cognitively understand, okay, fat bodies, thin bodies, all good bodies, but not my, not my fat yes. body, right? Yes. And, yes. and I think that it's really hard for women in particular, and you have a whole chapter on this, to buck the norm and say, Absolutely. my kid can have Hershey Kisses in her lunchbox yes. or whatever, because you may very well be facilitating your kid's healthy relationship with food, but you're now the mom who everybody knows yep. you pack the Hershey Kisses in the lunchbox. Yep. Yep. And, yep. you know, maybe maybe you don't want to talk about it because it has to do with your own triggers and your own relationship with food. And it's just easier to put on a good face and maybe have the Hershey Kisses back at home or something like that. Yeah. And just what do you think, like, what are the pressures that women in particular, mothers in particular, are under here? Oh, well, only all of the pressures. Like, how much time do we have? I mean, we the reason we work so hard on the damn lunchboxes mm-hmm. is that we are so judged by them. It's the, like, classic, my husband takes the kids to the grocery store, and even if one of them is, like, lying down on the floor of Walmart screaming and kicking, some old lady's going to come by and be like, you're doing such a good job. You know, thank you. So, like, what a good dad you are. Can I help you? Can I buy your kid a cookie to cheer her up? And if I take the kids to the grocery store and someone lies down on the ground, I'm like just get dirty looks and judgment that mm-hmm. I'm such a like lax mother who can't control her children. So mm-hmm. the double standard we have around parenting and gender is so intense. And it especially shows up in food because in general, women are socialized to be the feeders and the caretakers. And so we are the ones menu planning for the week. We are the ones grocery shopping. We are the ones, you know, facing down the kitchen at 5 p.m. on a Wednesday being like, okay, how am I going to do it again? (laughs) What's everyone going to eat? And all of that pressure, you're going to, it's understandable that you're going to try to control what you can control, right? And what Mm -hmm. you can control is what the lunchbox looks like. You can't actually control whether the kid eats the lunchbox unless you're really resorting to like high pressure tactics. And you can't control like, whether they like very much about whether they grow up to be whatever kinds of eaters. But if you are like meticulously making the rainbow lunchbox, you feel like you're checking off some box. And, you know, I don't want anyone to feel bad for participating in this. Like I have also Mm -hmm. participated in Mm -hmm. this for sure. Mm -hmm. I just want us all to step back and say like, how is this serving us? And Mm -hmm. what can we let go of? And how would it, how would it be different for our kids and for us? If we let go of some of this pressure and, you know, like started to say, like, maybe I don't have to cook from scratch mm-hmm. five nights a week or seven nights a week, however many nights a week you try to cook from scratch. Like, you know, maybe we can do whatever shortcut dinners and takeout and fast yeah. food and realize that, like, the time spent together as a family where we're enjoying eating together, no matter what we're eating is actually much more valuable for our kids than if I'm standing over them, like, counting out Brussels sprouts. You are speaking my language because I recently hosted a meal planning class where I thought we would just mostly talk about making meal planning easier. But what we got into was, like, the judgment people felt for buying a jarred sauce. Oh, my gosh. And and I'm like, like, ladies, you got to buy the jarred sauce. (laughs) Right? I mean, I say this as someone who grew up with an Italian stepfather. I really value homemade pasta sauce. We buy jarred sauce. We go through a jar a week in my house, minimum. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> making my own sauce from scratch is like, again, it's for me, it's a hobby. It's something to do on right. a Sunday afternoon when we're puttering around the house and it's going to, I'm going to like how it makes the house smell. And that's mm-hmm. going to be a fun thing to do on a cozy weekend. That is not something I am expecting myself to execute on Tuesday night. 
Absolutely. And and then we get into the alternative is, first of all, you feel very guilty about not making a from scratch dinner, which, Mm -hmm. you know, guilt and shame are never going to serve our actual, you know, long term health. And uh, everybody's got to eat something. So what are we eating? Expensive takeout, nothing wrong with chicken nuggets. But, you know, like, then that spirals back into the guilt and shame again. And maybe it's not so much pasta sauce, but like, you know, these like Alfredo sauces that have preservatives Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, but Um, they're delicious. And if your kids like them and they get dinner accomplished, like... A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. So there's a lot, there's a lot out there. But you actually, speaking of moms, you actually have an entire chapter dedicated to dad's role in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is kind of the first of its kind, right? Like we don't, <laughs> we don't have, other than, so. other than a handful of your newsletter pieces, I'm not sure where else we can point to explore the role that fathers, male figures play in the influence of anti-fat bias on our kids. So what's that about? (laughs) It is completely a conversation that's not happening. I mean, even in the research, when I was looking for studies on like the role dads play in eating disorder development, there's like three versus like hundreds on mothers, you know, I mean, there's a whole body of literature on mothers and eating disorders. And the ones, the research we do have on dads is usually like, if the dad is married to a mom with an eating disorder, like it's all still yeah. like yeah. skewed through. Yeah. So absolutely, there's this like longstanding double standard that somehow how men relate to food and bodies doesn't impact children at all or the family dynamic at all, which is garbage for anyone who has grew up with a father. Like they still talk about food. They talk about bodies. They talk about they make fat jokes. They, you know, like my dad did like 50 push-ups every morning and talked about why. Like, and I don't want to shame the dads. Like, this is just like I don't want to shame the moms. Like, they are swimming in the same soup we're all swimming in. But I do think what's even more complicated when we start to look at this with men is, number one, we don't have the scripts for this. We don't have the language for this. So it's really hard for men who are struggling to even identify that they're struggling Mm -hmm. versus just like, this is how I expect to relate to my body. And then even if they can sort of identify, oh, I'm really struggling with food and my body image, they can't get help because doctors aren't like aware. Like, it's just not on anyone's radar that they're really Mm -hmm. struggling. They don't know how to talk about it. They don't know how to say to like a guy friend, like, I feel really bad about my body and I'm skipping meals and I'm scared about that. Or, you know, like, Mm -hmm. there's none of that language. So that's really troubling and really, you know, obviously like super concerning in terms of how the men are. They are not okay. But also the other piece of it is like, we not only sort of ignore when they're struggling, we also reinforce and celebrate it. Like when you think about who we consider like the leading, the thought leaders on food and the quote obesity crisis, like it's a lot of thin white men. It's the Michael Mm -hmm. Pollins. It's, you know, the guys who were all about the intermittent fasting, hard 75. Like there's all these male oriented diets, and they are always given much more gravitas than diets marketed to women, which we might think of Weight Watchers as like kind of silly, or Noom even. Noom is like kind of marketed to men too, actually. That's that's yeah. that's a weird, <laughs> the, a weird one. Um, Noom is weird on the whole, but yes. Right, right, right. Sidebar, <laughs> Noom is weird. But, you know, just think like the way Gwyneth Paltrow gets like made fun of, right? Like she's yeah. a figure of fun. Goop is like something you make mm. jokes about how ridiculous Goop is. Oh my gosh, it's so extreme. Jack Dorsey, you know, Twitter CEO, like, or former Twitter CEO, 
eating like once a day is held up as like, oh, God, the willpower and the so macho and like, wow, the science on intermittent fasting is so impressive. And it's like, if a woman was eating like that, like it would be a red flag for eating disorder diagnosis. So Mm -hmm. that is then that shows up in the family dynamic, right? Because if dad is eating like that, if dad is doing his Ironman training or his, you know, like getting ready for whatever endurance sport thing that like weekend Mm -hmm. warrior type of hobby and all of his eating during the week is oriented around like fueling his sport. We're, we're like allowing that we're encouraging that because it's so great that he does these like really hardcore sports. And we're not like, is there anything a little disordered about you wanting to exercise for nine hours on a Saturday? Anything we want to back there? (laughs) No. Okay. Any weird messages for your kids who love pasta so much that you've cut out carbs while you're, you know, bulking up or whatever? I don't even like speak that lingo, but (laughs) when they uh, when they do their cuts and they're bulking and whatnot. Yeah. And and it absolutely shows up for kids because they know that dads make judgments. I also see because like on the like how kids get fed, because women, again, carry so much more of this water. We are the ones doing the research on something like division of responsibility mm-hmm. or more responsive feeding approaches. And then dads are often like stuck in a more old school, clean your plate, don't eat so much garbage, like the really negative mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And then there's that clash at the dinner table. And so for a kid who wants both parents' approval, like what are they supposed to do with that dynamic? Yeah, 100%. I see that a lot. Most of my clients are women and they want to do what's right for their kids. They're interested in learning. And then they go but I don't know how to convince my husband. Mm-hmm. Like, do you have a research study? Do you have something, you know, right. that would, you know, and it's, it's hard to find because first of all, all the research is somehow tangled up in obesity prevention. Right. Right? <laughs> and, but then also it's, you know, dads will get to this point where, well, I grew up in the clean plate club and look at me now, I'm training for an Ironman right. or whatever it is. It didn't work out so well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but there, <laughs> there's something else there of when a woman's on Weight Watchers, it's for vanity purposes. It's oh, yeah. To lose weight and be thin yeah. and be attractive to men. When a man is training for an Ironman, the impact on his body composition is almost like secondary. Like right, the, right. The, the prize is completing it and achievement and being and so strong. And there's nothing vanity related about it. <laughs> Definitely not at all. I've seen their Instagram posts. Like there's nothing vanity related about posting yeah. pictures of yourself with your medals and your shirt off. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. Certainly yeah. not aesthetic. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very, so, very <laughs> so assuming that most listeners here are women, I would love it if there were some men as well, but assuming that we're mostly women listening, what would you in a nutshell say that someone who is on board with, you know, raising kids, hopefully to have a healthy relationship with food, unpack anti-fat bias, could say to her male partner? Where do we go? I know. Where do you even start? If you want to get my book and leave it yes. out, or even right. say, I mean, I think it is fair to say to your partner, Look, I do the majority of the work on this and, you know, that is how we've set things up. And you can either then say, and I want to look at shifting up that balance if this balance Mm -hmm. is not working for you. Or you can say, you know, I get that I am like leading the charge here, but I need you to be involved as well. And that means I need you to read some stuff and Mm -hmm. I need us to have some conversations about how we're going to approach this. And, you know... There are a couple lines in the sand for me. I don't want us to shame bodies. I don't want us to make fat jokes. I don't want us to demonize food. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can do what you're like. You can't control what he's doing with his body. That's his stuff, you know. Yeah. But you can say, like, when the kids are at the table with us, like these topics like have to be off limits. Like, I don't want our kids exposed to that and talk about 
you know, if he feels comfortable and safe, like talk about how that stuff has harmed you. Or there is lots of research showing that how we talk about food and bodies negatively impacts kids. Mm -hmm. It's all cited in my book. So you can point to that if you need some footnotes. (laughs) And, you know, just I think like just agreeing on a few ground rules and then also thinking about like, well, where do we align in terms of what family meals do we both really treasure and celebrate? Like, how do we sync up on this? So it's not just like, combative, 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 you know, but Mm -hmm. like, what are the things about like, what are both of our priorities around feeding the kids and feeding ourselves? And how do we sort of use that as a starting point? And it might just be like, we agree, like in my house, like we agree that three nights a week takeout is an option. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we agree that unless he wants to cook more, which my husband's not a really big cook, he'll cook like maybe once a week, but his repertoire is limited. He's not particularly interested in learning to cook more. That is fine. That is his choice. But I am not cooking seven nights a week. So we are budgeting more for takeout Mm -hmm. to like make up for that labor. Mm -hmm. And that works for us. You know, that's not a point. That's not a source of conflict. Like, it's great. Yeah. So finding those kind of points where you know, I think it's really important we make all this labor very visible. I think women are often, we feel like we, the labor's not being seen. And I do think it's on us to like really announce it and narrate it, if necessary, yes. <laughs> you know, and make it clear that we're doing this work and not in a passive aggressive way, but just in a like, this is this work. Mm-hmm. You know, we also have a rule at my family dinner table that you do not start eating until the person who cooks sit down, sits down. And it's just like, and that was something that Dan was like super on board with because he saw how like upsetting and when he does cook, he experiences that like when everyone like rushes to start eating and you're still like getting your drink and coming to the Mm -hmm. table and you're like, I'm sorry, what? Like, am I, I'm not the waiter. (laughs) Like, um, and so, you know, my kids often sit with their forks like poised in front of their open mouth (laughs) waiting for my butt to hit the chair and then eat. But at least they are learning like. Like, we're making this labor visible. We're learning Mm -hmm. to respect the work that goes into making dinner and that that is something we really value as a family. And so that has helped me personally a ton to feel less like, oh, I'm the only one who's, like, focused on this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And especially with little kids who can't sit for longer than five minutes, sometimes I feel like I sit down. Yeah, they're already gone. She's already done. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not realistic to set goals of, like, you have to sit for 15 minutes. Like, that can be super stressful. But just like at least wait for us all to sit down and yeah, that and and clear your plate. Those are those are some <laughs> real important ones in my house. So this archetype of, you know, I think your chapter is even called like the thin white dads on yeah. diets or something yeah. like that. Why is it important? I, I know that this book is so important for people who are living in fat bodies to feel seen and move the needle in terms of that is not a negative. The negative is the fact that we are demonizing it. But why is it important for thin families to be having this conversation, to be picking up your your book? Yeah, there's really two reasons. The first one is you don't want to raise kids who are anti-fat, just like you don't want to raise kids who are racist or sexist or any other ist. So this is on parents of thin kids to start talking about what anti-fat bias is and naming it and helping kids learn how to be good allies. Like this is the same work you would do as a white parent talking about anti-black racism or any other marginalization issue. The other reason, though, and this, you know, comes out of my own personal story a little bit, is your thin kid may not be a thin adult. I was a thin kid. I was thin until I was about 17, 18. And then when I went to college, my body started to change. I now identify as small fat. And I've been, you know, in that category of body size for the past, 
I don't know, five to 10 years. And the reason I struggled was not because I thought being fat was a bad thing. It was more that I had tied thinness to my identity. It had been so praised in me as a child. It had been this default setting. And it had felt like a kind of superpower that I could eat whatever I want and not gain weight. And that this was something really celebrated and special about my body. And so then when that wasn't my body anymore, I felt like I had failed at something. You know, Mm -hmm. I felt like I had, I suddenly had to engage with food and exercise in a way that didn't feel good because I was like, oh, I have to try to get my thin pass back. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to get back Mm -hmm. to that. And so that's what I'm really trying to avoid. Like my own kids have straight size privilege right now. And I just really don't want them to have that same experience of feeling like, this is something I've got to hang on to at all costs because it's not realistic. It's not realistic. It is, again, only reinforcing the bias and causing harm to people around you, but it's also like kids deserve better. They deserve to know that their body is not their value. Yeah, I would go so far as to say that most people will find themselves in that situation of no longer being as thin as they were at one point in their life. Right, exactly. That's how human bodies work. Even if you stay straight-sized, you are probably a higher straight-sized than you were as a child. Because Yes. Yeah. And our options are basically to unpack that and reckon with it and ideally, you know, raise kids who who don't have to go through the same reckoning or to perpetuate diet culture by trying to achieve the small body again. Yeah. And we all know where that gets us. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So I think that, yeah, that's the other thing is like whatever the work you're doing, even if it doesn't seem like they, quote, need it right now, Mm -hmm. they actually do need it. And, you know, and it's also true that like thin kids still encounter diet culture, right? They Mm -hmm. still are told that their body is their value. You know, they're the kids who are going to get like all the praise from the coach as opposed to the fat kid who the coach is ignoring or Mm -hmm. isn't even on the team because the jersey doesn't come in their size. The thin kid is getting all the like sort of intensity from the coach of like, you're built like a runner, you're built like Mm -hmm. a dancer or gymnast or whatever. I think what that does to kids' sense of themselves is really disturbing. And I just think we want more for our kids than that. We don't want them to think that this body size is the best thing about me. Right, right. So true. Your chapter on, I think you use the quote, sugar addicts. Uh, I found that to be the most heart-wrenching chapter. And and I deal with a lot of families who are in similar positions. And what I think is so interesting and important about it is it's not just, you know, sugar is evil. We've got to restrict sugar from our kids. Like what you explore from the parents who are locking up the sweets is trauma in their own childhoods yeah, that yeah. brought them there. Absolutely. Um, and, and so I would be very hesitant to criticize or demonize any parent in this situation. But can you tell us a little bit more about that chapter and the stories you heard and where this is leaving us if we uh, sort of continue on this path? Yeah. So the chapter explores the stories of primarily one family who became concerned when one of their children started sneaking food. And so they got a lockbox and locked up all the treats and started having the kids, like, ask permission after dinner to get treats. And this, you know, these parents, like, I love this family so much. Like, this is a family I spent a lot of time with over Zoom to report this chapter. Mm -hmm. And they were incredibly open. And, like, they knew this was something that didn't sit right with either one of them. And they were trying to reflect on it. But they were also really caught in feeling super scared about, what that behavior looked like to them, this sort of sneaking food, this out of control look around that this child seemed like they were so out of control around sweets and so that they had to get control. And as we talked, it became clear that there was a lot of stuff in their own childhoods around the way food had been like the dad grew up low income and 
there simply wasn't enough food a lot of the time. So that creates a scarcity mindset. The mom grew up with a lot of diet culture messaging that had taught her that her body needed to be controlled in a major way. And I think this is so common. You know, I mean, that story, I think some people reading it will feel like this is an extreme story, but I actually don't think it's extreme at all. Mm -hmm. There are elements of this playing out in most households in so many ways. And what it really comes down to is needing to like get at the core of why am I so anxious when my child seems like they are, quote, out of control around sugar, understanding that probably underpinning that is anti-fat bias. And if you are ready to release anti-fat bias, that means being ready to release your fear of sugar, too. You know, like if you're mm-hmm. going to say, OK, actually being fat is fine. It's not a bad way to have a body then there is really no risk to this child occasionally eating lots of or frequently eating lots of mm-hmm. a beloved food. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we know, you know, so then I get into the research of like, well, what actually plays into a kid being so treat fixated or food fixated? And we know it's restriction. We know it's the the lockbox is only furthering <laughs> the fixation and the need to yeah. sneak and the need to hide. So whether restriction comes from true food scarcity because of money or it comes from a diet culture messaging like it is human nature it is an understandable response it is a feature not a bug to say oh i haven't had access to this food i now have access to this food i will eat a lot of this food because i don't know when i'm going to get it again and parents understanding that is just it's it's a really hard it's a really hard one because sometimes you can't you can't tell where the restriction comes from, you know? Like I've had parents say like, "But I know we don't restrict. I know we don't restrict." And then when we talk a little more, it's like, "Well, we do keep all the sugar up on the highest shelf in the pantry where the kids can't reach it." You know, or it's not a lockbox, but it's still mm-hmm. like or we do kind of tend to hover and be like, "Well, how many cookies are you taking?" And like mm-hmm. that's all that's all another form of restriction. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really complicated for people and undoing that there's such a scary initialization period. I think one family in the book does choose to sort of let up on it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's basically, again, parallel to adult intuitive eating is that when you decide to stop restricting, it is going to look like your worst fear yeah, for a while. Of right? course. Of course. <laughs> and, and that's really hard. I, I think as an adult, you're like, fine, I can eat all Doritos all day. It's my, my life, my choice. But to watch the kid and going back to that performance of health thing, mm-hmm. uh, go through that. And yeah. you're not sure when they're going to stop, right? right? And you have right. no control over when they're going to stop. Right. As an adult, you could technically put yourself back in restriction, right? Right. Uh, but that's just fear and, you know, the connotations with what kind of parent would do this. And of course, this gets us into my next question, you know, culture at large, pediatricians, Mm -hmm. uh, public health professionals are all like, not in such blatant terms saying lock up the sweets, but basically pushing that this is what a good parent would do or a good parent wouldn't bring it into the home in the first place. And that brings me to my question about the latest American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, which uh, for any listener who has managed to get this far without hearing about it, basically they are uh, obesity management guidelines for Kids that go so far as to recommend weight loss drugs and bariatric surgery starting at ages 12 and 13, handful of other restrictions in there. Uh, you know, it's all supposedly research backed, but, you know, people have kind of taken a look at the actual research and said, is, is it though? Is it though? Mm-hmm. Um, and the AAP has a 2016 paper that I actually find very useful in my weight inclusive practice. I link to it on my website that says, 
look here, all the research why we don't put kids on diets. And you do reference that paper in your book. But I imagine you submitted your manuscript before this latest AAP thing came out. And and maybe that's a good thing because you would have had to write a whole second book. I mean, I did go back to my editor and I was like, is it too late? Yeah. Can I I please add a chat? And she was like, wow, it's too late. I was like, Uh, like the timing of it kind of kills me because yeah. yeah. But, you know, I ended up like writing an op-ed about it for the Times and covering it a lot in the newsletter. So I certainly feel like everything in the book, like it doesn't change anything I wrote in the book. You know what I mean? It only is like the most crystalline example that I would have loved to be like, if you don't believe that fat phobia is alive and well in pediatric medicine here, check this out. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it is super disappointing, super frustrating. I am really scared for how these guidelines will impact so many kids, especially kids who are marginalized in various ways and kids whose parents are going to see those guidelines and think, okay, I have to, we have to do a diet. We have to try a weight loss medication. You know, let's do the referral for bariatric surgery. And, and the thing is, is like none of those parents are bad parents. Those are parents Mm -hmm. just responding to this pressure and this fear and they should be able to trust doctors not to fear monger to them and not to push them towards these treatments that are not evidence-based and it's just like such a failure of medicine that we can't count on doctors to do that Uh, it really really frustrates me as someone who is very pro-science and (laughs) pro-doctors to see this like real just yeah yeah, I kind of lose my words. Some of my mom friends and I who, you know, we, we vaccinate our kids. We go, look, the AAP says vaccinate your kids. And now we're in the position of being like, we'll listen to them on that. But but not exactly. like that. It's like <laughs> we are working so hard to establish like the importance of scientific credibility. Mm-hmm. And then you guys yeah. do this. And it's like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't which that 2016 yeah. paper, which is it's the title is simultaneously preventing, quote, obesity and eating disorders. Mm-hmm looks at the research that shows, oh, look at that. Every time we try to shrink a child's body, we either end up with an eating disorder or we end up in weight cycling, which has right. metabolic consequences that are also, you know, have poor health outcomes. Right. Let's not do that. Let's, I mean, it literally says, let's not use fat talk, right? Yes. <laughs> and here's yeah. what to do instead. So with that, I mean, 2016 was kind of a while ago. In my head, we were kind of working towards a new and better, braver world. And then, you know, Bam! Uh, here we are with semaglutide gets approved for use in 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 pediatrics, and right. bam, we get this paper. <laughs> what we were working towards was the FDA approval of weight loss drugs for children, and now that we have that, we need some scientific documentation. I'm using air quotes uh, to make parents feel okay about using this. And so, yeah, it's creating a market for weight loss drugs is what they're doing right now. And you know, the AAP is an organization that takes donations from pharmaceutical manufacturers. They are not this like completely unbiased, pure source that I think we want to believe they are. They also do do a lot of good, you know, and I think talking to doctors as I have been over the last couple of weeks, I think there's a lot of pediatricians who are very frustrated with these guidelines and very anxious about what it's going to mean for their clinical practice. Because mm-hmm. once you've made something, I mean, so the difference is the 2016 paper was a position paper, but it didn't establish clinical guidelines. Mm-hmm. Now they're giving out these like, this is what we think you should do, like actual practice guidelines. And mm-hmm. that puts pediatricians in a really tough spot because 
they are supposed to follow those. Like, those are their rules. And so now, you know, one doctor said to me, like, I'm worried this is going to open us up for litigation if we don't do Mm -hmm. it. Um, You know, we're going to have to get more creative in how we have these conversations with parents. So it's really tricky. And I think, unfortunately, it's putting a lot of burden on parents to educate ourselves and to advocate and to set boundaries at the doctor's office, like no wait talk in front of the kids, which you can do by, like, handing over a Post-it note at the start of the appointment or sending an email or calling ahead. And then if it does come up anyway, being prepared to pivot and to say, you know, we're not going to worry about that. Like, we're, we trust their body. We're not going to focus on weight loss. We don't think that's a good fit for our family. And this is scary. This is really hard for parents to have to go against a doctor or push back like that. Like, this is not something that comes easily and is not going to feel safe for everybody. So, yeah. yeah. And I even, I put something on my own Instagram about that, about pushing back. And Katja Rowell, who I, I imagine is cited in your book at some yes. point, yeah. <laughs> said, <laughs> said on my post, 100%, but let's think about our foster families yeah. and how they may not have a choice here. And I was yeah. like, oh, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) No, I think this is going to be used. I mean, we already see children's weight being a reason that parents lose custody or being a contributing factor. (laughs) And so this is going to come into play there with really serious and terrifying ramifications. Yeah. Well, that brings me to my last question, which is, you know, for me, and I'm sure for Katja and for everyone else who loves your work, this book is revolutionary. It is going to be on all our books. I don't even read paper books. I have ADHD. I don't even read paper books. I do audiobooks. <laughs> I'm still going to have a paper copy up my bookshelf. But, uh, you know, at the beginning of the interview, you're talking about an echo chamber, a bubble. Your book is phenomenal in our echo chamber. But I wonder if the world at large and, you know, the pediatricians who put together these kind of guidelines, you're a bit of a fringe writer. <laughs> and what is that like? What kind of pushback do you get? And what is it like being fairly confident that you're on the right side here? <laughs> I, I always like I always put these little asterisks on my Instagram posts that like, you know, every time I have to disclose like loving kids unconditionally is always the right side. Why the hell do I have to point this out? <laughs> so I, I imagine you're fairly confident in that yourself, but you may yeah. be perceived as kind of a fringe writer. People are going to read your book and be like, yeah, yeah, weight stigma is bad. But, you know, we still can't have fat kids. So yeah, what are we going to do absolutely. about that? What is that like? <laughs> That is the hardest part of the job, no question. You know, I made a pretty conscious choice about two years ago to start focusing more on my own newsletter rather than previously. You know, for most of my career as a journalist, I've been published in mainstream media outlets, Mm -hmm. wrote a lot for The New York Times and lots of women's magazines and all those places. And I really was burnt out on the pushback and the trolls and the men who email me Mm -hmm. when I do Mm -hmm. those stories. And it's, you know, I had just reached a point of like, it was both frustrating to get the negative pushback. And it's also frustrating to do those stories for those places, because mainstream media outlets have a lot of institutional anti-fat bias that you're up against. Mm -hmm. So I was just kind of exhausted. And I was like, you know what, I'm pivoting in terms of like my own work to do my newsletter, which has been such a joy and really just, oh, God, it's so lovely. (laughs) It's lovely. But it is also true that we cannot stay only in the bubbles and the echo chambers if we're going to make any progress here. And so, you know, I do occasionally come back. I mean, I'm going to publish this book, which obviously is sold everywhere, not just in Mm -hmm. uh, anti-diet spaces. 
and doing media for that and, you know, still occasionally write for the bigger outlets because I do really, I'm like, this is what I can do. Like, this is what I can contribute. I'm not a dietitian. I'm not someone who Mm -hmm. works directly with families, but I can like keep pushing the conversation into the mainstream a little bit. And it definitely takes a toll. Like those weeks are hard, but I think having this community is so, like it is such a balm. And, you know, like after my New York Times op-ed came out about the guidelines. Uh, like Aubrey Gordon texted me and was like, just checking in. We need these stories, but man, they are awful. How are you doing? Yeah. And I was like, thank yeah. you, Aubrey. I'm not great. But, you know, and like, it's just nice to feel like there are a bunch of us working on this and supporting each other. And, you know, on the flip side, some of the, the sort of like moments that have made me feel the most like, okay, I'm doing something valuable here are when I hear from a reader who's found me in a radio interview or, you know, wherever, like, mainstream place and sends a note and is like, I've been waiting for someone to say this or, you know, like, I I needed to hear this. You know, I I grew up and I experienced X, Y, and Z, and you're helping me understand it didn't have to be that way. And it's like, okay, it's worth doing. I'll take some angry men on Twitter. It's fine. Yeah, like, right. I'll be that shield. Like, let's let's keep doing it. Yeah. Because, and some of yeah. your best Instagram posts are when you screenshot <laughs> what they've said to you on Twitter. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's got, that guy's an asshole. Well, that is like the best advice I got on this was from Reagan Chastain, who deals with just ridiculous mm-hmm. numbers of trolls. And she says, you know, like, there's no right way to handle a troll or respond so you just do whatever feels good to you in the mm-hmm. moment because, like, you're not going to convince that guy. There's no point yeah. in having that conversation. So if you just want to ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist, that is your right. And if you want to mm-hmm. make fun of them, also fair game. And you know what? If you yep, show up in my DMs, in you <laughs> invited that. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. So. Well, it sounds like you at least have a good perspective on it and you're taking care of yourself. Honestly, if I were you, I wouldn't cook dinner seven nights a week either. No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I never will. I never yeah. will. No, absolutely not. <laughs> yes. Well, this has been really incredible. Seriously, uh, run, don't walk to buy this book, uh, everyone listening. It's it's really, uh, I think, a cultural landmark in this conversation, I would say. There is so, an audio book. If, like, awesome. Diana, you prefer audio yes. books, that <laughs> yes. is an option as well. So, <laughs> yes. And you can pre-order the auto audio book, yes. which I've done for, for a lot of the books that like even, you know, how to raise an intuitive eater. I have the Kindle, the print book and the audio book <laughs> for various reasons. We love you. One, Authors yes. love you. Thank yes. you. <laughs> but one reason is office decor for the hardcover. Usually. Sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, great. That's its primary yeah. purpose. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is so incredible, Virginia. Thank you for taking the time. And I can't wait for everyone to check out the book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Messy Intersection Substack at dianarice.substack.com. It's free, and you'll also get a welcome email with links to some more of my favorite free resources. And if you are a Facebook user, I would also love for you to join us over in the free Facebook group, Raising Anti-Diet Kids. This is absolutely the place to ask all your burning questions about raising intuitive eaters, raising kids who dismantle anti-fat bias, and processing through your own food issues and biases yourself. And if you're needing some additional help, I do offer individual coaching, both on adult intuitive eating as well as feeding your kids. And you can check out those services on my private practice website, tinycnutrition.com, which will also be linked in today's show notes. Until next time, my friends, embrace the mess. Mm -hmm.